Hey everybody, welcome back to another week of Securiosity. Before we get started though, let's tell you about a DC Cloud Week. DC Cloud Week is a citywide festival bringing together thousands of government and tech leaders from around the nation to share how the cloud is transforming government, academia, nonprofits, and the private sector. The week-long festival consists of events like community conferences, events, and parties, anchored by Fed Talks, the largest annual gathering of the top 1,000 C-level leaders from the GovTech community. For more information, check out dccloudweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for May 3rd. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. This week, we will cover the accused Vault 7 leakers' wild civil rights claims, bafflingly <laughs> bad security from a fintech giant, and how $5 billion in ad fraud is actually a good thing. In our interview, we are going to talk with Hypercube CEO Craig Stevenson about his new company and what exactly drove him to create a cyber range as a service. There was also a bunch of news from the government, including a new executive order geared toward the cybersecurity workforce. So let's talk about it. The White House has issued an executive order that is intended to bolster the nation's cybersecurity workforce. The order includes provisions geared towards the federal government's employees, as well as education and career development for the overall U.S. workforce in general. The White House also wants to create a President's Cybersecurity Cup competition that will identify, challenge, and reward the government's best personal supporting cybersecurity and cyber excellence. Other elements include allowing cybersecurity employees to rotate among agencies and using new cybersecurity aptitude tests as part of an effort to reskill federal workers. Greg, how much of this was needed? Uh, uh, it was very, very much needed. Uh, this has been a big thing for uh, this administration, particularly on the reskilling side. Uh, there's been news that there's uh, you know a, a really big effort out of the. Uh, Office of Management and Budget to reskill federal workers when it comes to cybersecurity. And I believe Suzette Kent said at one of uh, our recent FedScoop events that there were maybe 20 to 25 slots, and I think 1,800 people applied for the first round of federal wow. reskilling. There's a second one that's up right now, I believe, that you know thousands are applying for. So it's clear that the demand is there to learn these skills and get it inside uh, the federal government and the workforce overall. I mean, there's there's so many, there's hundreds of thousands of cybersecurity jobs open and not enough people to fill them. So if it comes from the executive branch, if it comes from the legislative branch, it's clear that the government understands they need to do something when it comes to the cybersecurity workforce. I speak about the legislative branch because there was a bill that was passed earlier this week that would put that employee rotation idea already into action. And I know that happens at somewhat of a level inside the federal government where somebody might be at DHS for a little bit, they're inside CISA, but then they get deployed out to either state or treasury or wherever just to go do some cybersecurity stuff. They're on detail and then they go back to doing what they did before. So it already happens at some level inside government, but to you know, really put it on the books and put some like legal weight behind it, I think is really, really good because it's going to give agencies cover to, you know, use this shared services model, not from obviously a technological perspective, but from a workforce perspective where it's, well, we have all of this talent. Let's not keep all of this talent cooped up inside one or two agencies. Let's spread it throughout the government and do what we can to get everybody on the same page. Yeah, I mean, it's cybersecurity. A, it's a great way to, to make sure every agency is secure. 
Yeah. Sure. Um, and I would not be surprised if we do see more coming from the legislative side of things, because I think that is actually one thing that the executive branch and the legislative branch actually see eye to eye on. It's getting more people inside cybersecurity, especially within the federal government. So Joshua Schultz, the former CIA computer engineer, has filed a preliminary complaint seeking immediate release from federal detention, according to documents <laughs> filed earlier in March. Schultz was arrested in 2017 and accused of crimes including sexual assault, possessing child pornography, and later providing documents detailing CIA hacking capabilities to WikiLeaks. In the handwritten notes, Schultz compared himself to a victim of the Nazis and said the government has caused him to lose more than $50 billion in income. The note reads, what if Bill Gates' life was similarly destroyed by government malfeasance prior to Microsoft? Would he have been reimbursed the $80 billion he's worth today? Jen, wow. Um, spot the lie in his logic. Can't, can't is, argue with it. Can't wow, argue with it. Wow, this is just amazing. It's, it, it, it's borderline insane, some of the stuff <laughs> really that, is, that was yeah. written here. And it's partly sad because Schultz is in the Brooklyn's MCC prison, or I'm sorry, it might be in Manhattan, might be in Brooklyn, not sure the location, but it's in New York. And the MCC prison made a lot of news over the winter because they were the prison that lost power for like a week and a half and the inmates didn't have electricity or blankets or the, the conditions were, were beyond even, you know, the worst of what you've heard about prison. So it's clear that he's not in the best situation. However, there were also screeds in this letter talking about how he felt that his rights were being infringed upon including his second amendment rights which you're in jail like you weren't going to be able to bear arms anyway so it's kind of like yeah de facto like you might he, for for the record he's in solitary confinement that's partly why he wrote this note so he's a little bit he, he right crazy maybe from having been in solitary confinement. I mean, but he was arrested for um, charges. I mean, what does he expect that should we be reversing every single person who goes to jail? Well, not only that, he was caught in November with contraband cell phones in his jail cell that wasn't solitary confinement. So it's not like he's a pariah here, like. There are certain rights that get taken away when you go to jail. One of them is the ability to communicate with the outside world. So this notion that you're just being, you know, stumped yeah. under the giant foot of the U.S. government because <laughs> you did all of this stuff and, and, and you can't be a, a billionaire now is a bit ridiculous. Like part of the reason you're in solitary confinement is you broke some of the rules that you have in in place in part of your incarceration. And even if you weren't in solitary confinement, nobody has, like, the, the Second Amendment part is ridiculous to me because, well, yeah, like, you, you can't have weapons in jail. Like, it's such an absurd request that why would you even put it in there? Like, yeah, your Second Amendment rights are infringed when you're in jail. That's, that's how it works no matter who's in jail. Like, I'm sorry, that's a ridiculous notion to put in a civil rights complaint. Absolutely amazing. So, um, yeah, this is something we've been keeping watch of, uh, uh, <laughs> something that obviously stirred up a lot of emotions uh, among our, our readership. 
but it just wild, just the logic of saying, I could be a billionaire if I wasn't in jail right now. Well, <laughs> I mean, join the club. Right? Amazing, yeah. That's, I mean, it makes good for good news. So hackers may have stolen sensitive data from roughly 190,000 Docker accounts. In an email to customers, Docker said attackers may have been able to steal proprietary source code from some victimized accounts. Look, some of the breach still is under investigation. Some of the largest technology companies in the world rely on Docker to run their own containers. By breaching Docker, the logic goes hackers could have leveraged that access to infiltrate many thousands of other more sensitive code repositories by subverting multi-factor authentication of other controls or other controls. Greg, how bad could this be? Uh, this could be really, really bad because that last part of what you just talked about there is really where it shows how bad this could be. Um, Docker is immensely popular when it comes to setting up enterprises and, and their networks and all of the applications that we use. Um, it's just, it's been one of the most popular tools for, I'm going to say three or four years now, if not further back. Uh, as the cloud has grown, containerization has grown, and Docker's the leader in containerization. So if you're abusing what really is the underlying infrastructure of so much of what we use, and that can then lead to other sensitive code repositories, who knows what's in those code repositories? You could be talking just the crown jewels of a bunch of different enterprises. So Nothing has been shown to be exploited in the wild because of this yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is a month, two months, three months from now. I mean, Docker's in everything. So if there are, you know, these instances that then lead to other parts of enterprises being popped because of this, that's that's really, really bad. So it's, this is definitely something to keep an eye on, and it's another reminder that you need to be careful how you store your credentials and your sensitive data and how all of this really works in concert with one another. So the Department of Homeland Security on Tuesday ordered agencies to have the time they take to patch vulnerabilities deemed critical. The order, which acknowledged that hackers are getting quicker at exploiting vulnerabilities, attempts to hold agencies' feet to the fire in securing their tech. Jen, the timeline we talked about last week seems to be falling even further i mean that's that's interesting i mean i still think it's a really long time but be right it, it is getting shorter yeah um the order said that right now i believe the statute is they have 30 days to yeah. uh, patch critical vulnerabilities and this would move it to 15 days and we heard Chris Krebs talk uh, a couple weeks ago about how he thinks it's around 20 right now. So even that push to move it to 15 days, I think, is uh, a smart one. And I, I think it's smart to put it in a binding operational directive to make sure that everybody knows how serious that this is. If you see critical next to vulnerability, it should be top priority. Yeah. So get out there and, and put those patches out there and make sure that you're not uh, breaking systems in the meantime. A credit union in a tiny Pennsylvania town has sued a fintech giant for alleged shoddy security practices that exposed customer financial data. In a lawsuit filed Friday, Bessemer System Federal Credit Union alleged that a web platform maintained by the vendor Fiserv is plagued with security vulnerabilities that affect the privacy of thousands of Bessemer's members. While the complaint describes Fiserv's technology as the lifeblood of the credit union, the financial institution now says it's ditching the Fortune 500 company because of the allegedly negligent security practices. 
Greg, so tell us more about how strong this lawsuit came off. Pretty strong. It was really, really strong in the language that was used, which happens in lawsuits. I mean, lawyers will do that. But the evidence that was presented and how negligent Fiserv allegedly was. I mean, you're talking about basic vulnerabilities that were hanging out there. Such as what? Cross-site scripting. Um... SQL errors that were all over the place. Um, And it wasn't just that. It was a lack of follow-up from the company. I mean, the the, the bank called them up and was like, we see all of this. Like, can you do something about it? And they would not return calls, um, just kind of gave them the stiff arm when it comes to trying to fix this stuff. And also uh, threatened them to say, you're not going to go anywhere else. We have a contract and you're in... With us, I mean, it, it, I use the term bafflingly bad security because that's what was in the lawsuit when they filed it. And it, it really rings true to form. Like, there are just pages and pages and pages in this lawsuit of just really negligent stuff when it comes to the way that Fiserv set up this company's systems. And this isn't just out of thin air. Uh, Brian Krebs did a story. I believe sometime last year that Fiserv was having a really, really hard time with their customers when it comes to fixing security holes that they figured out. And this is a really big problem because Fiserv is one of the bigger fintech giants. They do a lot of work with these small federal credit unions and, and small community banks that don't have the assets that like a Wells Fargo or a Bank of America has. I mean, you're talking about financial institutions that have overall in their asset portfolios like 40 to 50 to 60 million dollars and you're talking about an employee base that might be 10 to 15 people like they don't have CISOs and they don't have teams of security people so they can't fix it themselves and they're depending on these companies to protect it with the same grade of technology that you're getting at the higher commercial banks like PNC and TD Bank and, you know, all of the big names that we all know and use. So it's a really, really interesting case to follow. And if anybody has anything else that they know about Pfizer, we'd love to hear about it. We want to hear more about the, the, the relationship that this company has with some of the federal credit unions, because look, this is important. This is this is people's money. And, and community banks deserve the same amount of protection that you would get from a Wells Fargo or a PNC Bank or Bank of America or whatever, you know, whatever commercial bank you use. So it's definitely something that shows how, again, third-party security is so, so important and that it's just a, a really negligent thing that's going on, whether it's financial, healthcare, transportation, like third-party cybersecurity is definitely something that is more and more coming into focus as a real-world pain point. I mean, this also seems like the type of lawsuit that, you know, is sort of a company killer, right? I mean, if Fiserv can't perform for this credit union and, and as you mentioned, others, you know, what what's going to happen to them either they're going to change quickly or be out of business despite being fortunate to have under it? Right. Um, I wouldn't think that this lawsuit alone would 
would damage their reputation. But again, I would not be surprised if there are other smaller community banks out there right now that are seeing this and going, hey, yeah. yeah, hey, th- this is exactly the same problem that we're having. Let's see what we can do as far as you know, getting involved in this lawsuit or yep. filing some sort of class action one. lawsuit yep. or something like that. So um, yeah, really, really interesting story that we're going to be watching moving forward. So online advertising fraud will cost digital marketers $5.8 billion this year, which is actually down from $6.5 billion the year before, according to new research. The forecast arrived in a report published Wednesday by White Ops and the Association of National Advertisers, which provides a sliver of hope for ad companies who have lost money by paying for access to humans who don't actually exist. This year's decline can be attributed to the adoption of ads.txt type spoofing protocols, and incremental advances in more secure video advertising technology. But it's also clear that ad fraud rings are also updating their strategies and looking for new ways to make a buck. Ad fraud traditionally involves buying hard-to-detect bot traffic that artificially inflates legitimate traffic to desktop websites, a technique preferred by the accused methbot and Eve scammers, which is a case we have been following pretty closely. But Jen, crazy to hear that $5.8 billion is a step down. I know, such a huge huge number. Um, but you know, we're also seeing a lot of companies break into the space of protecting against ad fraud. It's really interesting that there aren't more companies, I feel like, because I recently saw a like roadmap of the market when it comes to ad tech technologies. And it looked like one of those big mosaic paintings that you yeah. see when you take like 500,000 images and paste it together to make one image. Like there are just so many companies out there in the ad tech space and I don't get the sense that any of them are really security focused, which is alarming. I that mean, is alarming. I, it's it's alarming. That's the 5.8 number. Yeah, right. I mean, 5.8 it's just wild to me that this report hit the media and even we were like because again, it's it's a billion dollar drop, but still we're talking about $5 billion in wasted revenue that's just going into the pockets of scammers or criminals off of just rogue clicks. I mean, you could set up a bot and, and have just clicks from humans that that are not humans at all. Yeah. It, it's really yeah. A, a fascinating thing. And I would read more about it um, in terms of like the meth bot and the Eve stuff because it really shows the the... I don't want to say high level of sophistication because it's not technically sophisticated, but it's sophisticated from like an organizational standpoint to see how everything is set up and how there's just this hierarchy overall that's very cleanly run and drains these billions away. And there's really no technology out there that can stop it, at least not yet. So Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to a a distiller or another company like it to talk about you know, what they're doing about um, meth bots and um, 3V scammers. So the task force created by the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command to thwart Russian influence in cyber attacks is now permanent. The Russia Small Group, whose existence NSA Director Paul Nikosoni announced in July of last year, settles in as the White House, Congress, and the Pentagon have taken steps to clarify how and when the military should conduct offensive operations. The NSA and Cyber Command have revealed at least one operation that stems from the new freedom to operate, as well as explicit focus on Russia. The group successfully interrupted the internet access of the Russian government-backed internet research agency in the buildup to the 2018 midterm elections. 
So, Greg, how do you see this unfolding moving forward? Um, very much in the standpoint of the way the military would operate if it was a more, like, kinetic, traditional uh, operation. It's just here. It's it's here to stay, and as long as Russia keeps pulling the stuff that <laughs> line the pages of cyberscoop.com, you're going to see uh, the Russia small group try to thwart those efforts. Um, it's really interesting to me that it's called the Russia small group, too, because how small is small? I mean, we're talking about the NSA here. We're, like... 10,000, 20,000 between actual enlisted officers and contractors here. So uh, I wonder how small, quote unquote, this team uh, really is. Are we talking a task force of 30 people? Like, is it almost like the, you know, digital SEAL yeah, Team 6? Yeah. yeah. Is it digital SEAL, SEAL Team yeah. 6? Or are we talking a thousand people like what are we getting at there so that's something that is the most interesting part to me like from a resource standpoint like how many people are we devoting to trying to keep which is essentially right now if it's just focus ira wise are we talking just bots like also the focus is here because russia has a ton of different ways that they can go they have the bots they have the misinformation so are we talking just to focus on that or are we talking a focus on the the fancy bears and the cozy bears and the more sophisticated actors that are building out uh their own tools that we've seen leverage particularly with the dnc and what they've been doing in ukraine are, are we, is that team focused on that are they focused on both too so um now that this team is more permanent, I hope that we get a little bit more uh, in the way of details, starting with what exactly is small there. <laughs> so in the funding corner this week, uh, talking about one company, Red Canary, a Denver-based provider of endpoint security and cyber threat detection solutions, raised $34 million. Uh, the company specializes in cloud-based management, detection, and response, which is known as the MDR segment, and they ingest and analyze over 500 terabytes of telemetry per day and apply behavioral analytics technology to surface potential threats to in-house team of security analysts, which then go to their clients and say, hey, you got some problems. You should probably fix them. Uh, Jen, um, talk to me about what you know about Red Canary and whether you think this is a good race. 500 terabytes of data. That's amazing. It That's just, a lot of yeah. telemetry to go through uh, a day. Thank thank the cloud because, yeah, they wouldn't be around otherwise looking through that stuff. Yeah. Um, who was the $34 million race fund? Do you know? It was raised by existing adventures from Access Venture and Noro Mosley Partners and then... Uh, they had uh, some Summit. small yeah. other, yeah, some small other, you know, get their usual piece of the pie as most of these raises go. But it looks like uh, Summit was also involved uh, as well. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's really exciting. And it's a lot of data to be ingesting and then be able to provide analytics on top of it. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, it, uh, a lot of telemetry there. So they're obviously seeing a lot. So that's really interesting to hear from uh, a standpoint i would love to be able to break down market wise yeah whether that is on the high end of things whether that's on the low end of of things in terms of data and whether there is a correlation between the amount of telemetry that you're ingesting and the success of the product or or whether people think that yet more data more visibility better product yeah if anybody's out there wants to talk about that uh Hit both of us up because we'd love to hear well, more about actually, it. Well, and actually, I think, um, and we should have them on, I actually think they um, got their start um, in the D.C. area 
Okay, now to our interview with Craig Stevenson and Jessica Kreitzer of Hypercube. But before we get to that, if you have been to one of our events, you know we're not your typical cybersecurity conference. So we're taking our show on the road again this year, and from September 16th to the 20th, we'll be hosting New York Cyber Week. The week, as always, is about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. So register now to join 60-plus community events around New York City. And for more information on what we have planned, check out nycyberweek.com. Okay, now we are here with Craig Stevenson and Jessica Kreitzer. Craig is the CEO and Jessica is the Chief Revenue Officer of Hypercube. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. So, tell us about your company. What exactly is it that Hypercube does? Sure. Uh, Hypercube makes it easy to create, share, and distribute enterprise-scale virtual infrastructure. I can give you a specific example of something we're getting ready to do for large enterprise clients so that an application of our technology might make a little more sense. Yeah, that, I was going to say, that was extremely simple. Let's dive in a little bit more and, and talk about how enterprises can leverage that product. Sure. So right now, uh, we have an enterprise that has a really large problem. They have a whole bunch of proprietary data stored in a code repository inside of Amazon Web Services. The way They also have thousands of contractors that need access to that information. So the way they're doing it today is they let contractors VPN directly into their network and then they have a direct connect between their network and AWS. The issue and their concern is that when contractors VPN into their network, they have access to tons of resources that they shouldn't. They don't have access to just the data that that contractor should have. Okay. So here's the solution we've proposed to them. Um, we'll give them two very simple dashboards. Dashboard number one will show every data source they have in their company. In this case, I can be very specific, it's a Bitbucket server which is made by Atlassian sitting inside of AWS. Okay. Then they can see every single contractor who currently has access to it. And the way they have access is Hypercube allows them to actually build all the virtual infrastructure that connects just that contractor to just that piece of data. And with the single click of a button, they can either deploy 500 of these virtual infrastructure bridges which connect data to contractor, or they can destroy them just as rapidly. And so underneath of all that, what powers all that is the ability to rapidly create, clone, and destroy virtual infrastructure. But their particular use case is being able to manage who in my organization has access to this data and who doesn't. And then you can look at it from two directions. So I can look at the data and see what contractors have access to it, but I can also look at an individual contractor and see every single virtual infrastructure bridge they have to every resource in my company. And the CISO can look at a panel and with one click of a button, say completely remove the ability of an entire contracting company to have access to any of their corporate resources. So you talk about selling the product as being able to set things up more quickly. Can you talk a little bit about what makes other products so slow to set up and why this is such a problem? Sure. It all boils down to the copying and cloning of actual virtual infrastructure. 
Uh, so you could do this manually with VMware, which is something we did, uh, which is actually where I cut my teeth at Raytheon. So we were, okay. we were solving that problem of copying and cloning virtual infrastructure for a different use case, but it was all the hurdles. It was that miserable experience that led me to create the company. And I said, this should be easier. This should take one button. Or, or should be completely automated and should not require a human in the loop. Um, it turns out we went out to industry and tried to buy that solution, and industry fell on its face. Like, this was a Raytheon contract that would end up being worth millions of dollars to whoever won it, and we brought more than one company in who sent their engineer to our facility and couldn't get their own product working. So we first met uh, when you were starting Mach 37, and, and you look a little bit different now. Tell us about why you started the company and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, so we originally thought we were going to solve a problem with cybersecurity education. So the original problem we thought we were going to solve was it's really expensive to create and deploy all the virtual infrastructure necessary to teach a cybersecurity education class. Um, so we solved that problem, and then we quickly realized that although we had successfully solved that problem, enterprises, we could use that exact same solution to solve billion dollar problems for huge enterprises. And so we pivoted from solving just the educational problem, making it easier for cybersecurity professors to orchestrate and teach their classes, to making it easier for huge enterprises to orchestrate and manage thousands of virtual environments. And when I say virtual environments, I want to make a distinction. Solutions exist today to rapidly copy and clone individual virtual machines. Solutions exist today to make copies and clones of software-defined networks. But in order to actually deploy a solution that does anything, you have to do both of those things together. Right. And that's what nobody was making easy to do. So beyond the corporate side of things, because a lot of what this product reminds me of is the conversation around cyber ranges. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, on your website you bill a lot of the products as a cyber range as a service. Mm -hmm. And I know that cyber ranges are really, really big on the public sector side, particularly alongside like the National Guard. I know you partner with the National Guard, so mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about that partnership and how you see the National Guard utilizing their product for their mission. Sure. Um, so the, the National Guard has a very large cyber range, uh, and they were encountering the following problem. It was they have thousands of people that want to participate in events on that cyber range, and the orchestration of those events was a massive amount of labor. So we actually encountered a similar problem at Raytheon when I was working at the cyber range for Raytheon. It was the amount, say an event has a budget of $10 million in order to run. A million, possibly two million of that is gonna to go to setting the event up and another million or two million is gonna to go to tearing the event down. And I was of the opinion that once an event was set up, you should never have to spend that million or two million dollars either setting it up or tearing it down again. And the that's the problem we're solving for the National Guard. So what we're letting the National Guard do, once they've built an event, they can now make that event available on demand to any one of their customers 
and there doesn't need to be a person in the loop anymore. They don't need to, no one needs to come to them and give them budget for two weeks of labor for a team of engineers to set up the event and then another two weeks for them to tear it down. They've built the event and now they have a product that they can just make copies of and push out on demand. So uh, I'm interested to hear why is there such a lift to set something like this up? Like you were talking about millions of dollars just for the setup and the teardown and two weeks to set something up like that. Why is it, why does it take so long to do something like that? Is it just a matter of getting the right infrastructure in and, and it's a matter of tweaking and coordinating what needs to be done as far as like the rules and the standards that are set up? Like I, I'm wondering, that just seems so astronomical to me that it would take for, for a cyber range exercise almost a month of setup in, in the long run. So the, the reason that that happens, um, most people who are customers of a cyber range want to come in and learn four or five specific skills. The issue is in order to learn those skills, they have to have access to an actual setup functioning and working enterprise network. So when I say enterprise network, I mean a, a typical network full of Windows domain controllers, mail servers, databases, um, pretty much everything you would think of to run inside your normal giant enterprise. Well, somebody has to build that from scratch for the event, and then when the event is over, the participants have more than likely destroyed all of that infrastructure because a lot of times that's what they're learning how to do. Right. So once it's destroyed, you have to toss it all out and rebuild it again from scratch. So that's the issue. The issue is you have engineers spending their days rebuilding full-blown enterprise architectures for setup for an event. Jessica, you recently announced a partnership with Forrester. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so um, Forrester partnered with Hypercube to uh, enable their consultants to deploy their zero trust uh, methodology within their enterprise customers. So what Hypercube will be doing with Forrester is allowing um, their analysts to work with their clients remotely and collaborate to help their enterprise customers get to a zero trust uh, network infrastructure. So a question for both of you. Tell me about the ecosystem here in the D.C. area when it comes to cybersecurity startups, because it seems like more and more people are following Craig's path, where they spend time inside uh, either a government agency or a government contracting firm, spending time inside the defense industrial base, and then taking their ideas out into the incubators in the area. So I would love to hear about the ecosystem from your perspectives. Sure. Uh, you want to go first, Jessica, and then yeah, I'll go? Okay. <laughs> So I can tell you my experience. Um, it seems to me that a very common story is uh, innovators inside of large defense contractor, defense contracting companies are solving problems for people and then they eventually get tired of, I mean once you get to a certain size like a Raytheon there's necessarily bureaucracy and they move slower and these people want to innovate and move faster. And the only way to do that is to actually leave and start your own company. And one of the more fabulous things about the D.C. area is the ecosystem of incubators and mentors. And it really makes it easy. I don't want to say easy is not the right word. It makes it easier to leave and start a company 
given the resources we have available. Like for my company in particular, the reason I was able to leave and start my company was Mach 37. They gave me, they, they wrote a check that was large enough for me to be able to quit my job and have enough runway to get this company up and running. Jessica, how did you get your start in cybersecurity? So um, I started my career in, secure, in cybersecurity out in the Bay Area many, many years ago. I worked with um, Iron Mountain uh, back okay. in 2007, 2009, uh, and then moved back to the East Coast, did many various uh, enterprise sales roles, and partnered with Mach 37 about four years ago, actually, as a mentor did some independent consulting and uh, joined another cybersecurity startup and then uh, now I'm on to number two with Craig. So I'd love to hear your opinion too. Talk to me about what you've seen as far as the DC ecosystem is concerned when it comes to cybersecurity startups. So I believe that the DC region is really unlike any other when it comes to cybersecurity. We have all of the resources um, here in the area due to all of the, the intelligence and defense and government um, but on the, on the private side, if you look at the money that's available and the um, experience here, I think it's really like no, no other. So how does it compare with the Bay Area? Because obviously the Bay Area is Silicon Valley. It's, it's the home of everything. But I feel like, especially with being rooted in doing cybersecurity coverage here in D.C., there's an interesting juxtaposition because I feel like sometimes this area either runs with Silicon Valley or sometimes I believe outpaces it a little bit. I don't know if you feel the same way, if you have that same opinion, like what's the dichotomy there in your eyes? I feel that in the Bay Area, it's, it's just a, an overall um, you know, tech playground, right? And what I love about DC for cyber is we're very, we're very focused, right? Most of the resources here are deployed in cybersecurity. Whereas in, in the Valley, you're kind of lost among many, right? So it's easier, I believe, to get your start here um, as a cyber company as opposed to the Bay. So Craig, you were talking about cybersecurity education and I know that you are also a professor on the side. Can you tell us a little bit about the program that you're involved with? Uh, yeah, so I, use, uh, I don't teach there anymore, but I used to teach at the Krieger School for Intelligence uh, down at DuPont Circle. And okay. I taught Introduction to Cyber Operations. So the idea was to take people in the intelligence community and give them enough knowledge and some actually hands-on experience so that they could have intelligent conversations and understand the problems in the cybersecurity world. And during your time there, how did you see the curriculum change or the demand change? Because we've heard so much about how the cybersecurity workforce, there's just openings upon openings upon openings. There was just uh, an executive order put out by the White House yesterday that's trying to jumpstart cybersecurity education. So what have you seen over the past few years as cybersecurity education continues to grow? Like, has it grown? Have you seen a demand sort of rise? I've definitely seen I've definitely seen the demand rise, and I've seen a number of companies pop up to try and solve that demand. Um, I think one of the huge problems is actually access to the tools. So okay. if you go and look at job posts, job postings for companies, they'll say you need to be able to use Splunk, ArcSight, and maybe two or three other tools. Okay. Well, as a consumer. If I want to learn how to use those tools, suppose I'm, I'm, suppose I'm a student, I've graduated from school, and I now need to have those things on my resume. 
Well, those tools have a starting price of $250,000. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? Right. So a huge problem is actually access to the tools that only enterprises can afford. So what else have you seen in terms of a curriculum standpoint? Like, what are you seeing students are interested in? Is it more of just defensive side of things, or is everybody still rushing to be like the lead level hackers? They want to write zero days and, you know, go up to the NSA or be like, you know, this elite level. Uh, Students all want to learn how to pop boxes. Okay. So they all want to learn how to break into and hack computers, which is way more interesting than learning, how, than learning how to stop it from a, from a former student's perspective. Um, and also, the, the mission is actually significantly easier as well. It on is the offensive side? It is much easier to break into something than it is to sit on the defensive side. And one of the reasons is uh, actually the, the tooling. So as an offensive practitioner, all I, ha I can look, I have a million keys and a thousand locks, and I can automate trying every single key and every single lock until one of them works. From the defensive side of things, I have to defend against, for every single lock, I have to defend against a million possible keys. And if I screw up one time, they're in. So it's really just a numbers game. So do you see the curriculums sort of morphing into giving people what they need to know when it comes to defensive security? Or is it one of those things where it's everybody needs to learn how to pop the boxes or drop shells or do any of that before they learn to go to the defensive side of things? So I'm a big fan that both sides, if you want to be an offensive guy or an offensive person or a defensive person, you should learn how the other side thinks. I think in every single case, learning the other side makes you better. So if I'm an offensive guy, I would want to be intim intimately familiar with the tools and techniques that the defenders are going to use to stop me. And if I'm a defender, I should be intimately familiar with the tools and techniques that the offensive guys are going to use to try and come at me. Okay. So we end um, all these interviews with a random question. So what would you do if you couldn't use the internet or watch TV for a month? And working on your company does not count. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, I would actually get back into arm wrestling. So I used to travel up and down. Arm wrestling. Arm wrestling. I used to travel up and down the East Coast competing in arm wrestling competitions. And so if I didn't have access to any electronics, I still have my arm wrestling table. I'd call up my old arm wrestling buddies and start training again. What was that like? I, I feel I like had the two of you should arm wrestle right yeah, now. No, I, well, I would lose. I would absolutely lose. So it, it wouldn't even be a contest. But I have to hear more about the contest. How would that work? How many people would be at these contests? Like, I, I'm fascinated by this. Sure. Uh, a, a, a small tournament, tournament would normally have... 20, 30 people at it. Okay. Uh, and then they have large national scale ones that have hundreds of people at them. Um, and actually, one of the reasons I got into it was because I saw an article in a newspaper about a guy from Connecticut or Massachusetts. I can't remember. His okay. name is his name's Norm Devio, and he's 70 years old. And he wins that state's uh, arm wrestling championship every single year, and he has for the last... 30 or 40 years. So I saw that, and I'm getting older, and I was like, this is something I could do forever. This is fantastic. I like seeing the old guys beat up on the young kids. <laughs> so that's what got me into it. Did you ever face him? 
Yeah, no, I've practiced with him before. Did you beat him? No. <laughs> no? No. He's, he's still out there at he, 70 oh, years old just wasting the uh, the young kids? I should check because I, I, I did all of my arm wrestling about 10 years ago, so he would be in his 80s now. Wow. But it wouldn't surprise me if he's still winning. Wow. Okay. Jessica. Yeah, Jessica, can you top that answer? I think mine would be uh, much less exciting. So I would probably start by reading all of the books that are sitting in a pile right now that I don't have time to read. <laughs> I actually, just to, just to give you some context, last week did disconnect for only two days, but it was uh, pretty fantastic. Went to the woods and to a thing called the getaway, and it was incredible. That sounds more in line with where where Same. I would end yeah. up going. <laughs> but but I would, now I would have to say I'm at least going to check out this, this arm wrestling <laughs> circuit. That's fascinating. Uh, also fascinating is uh, Hypercube, the company that you guys have launched. So, Thank you very much for joining us. Really, really. Thanks, guys. It. Oh, you're Thank welcome. You. All right. Thanks again to Craig and Jessica for joining us. Arm wrestling. Jen, I didn't expect to hear that. I, I could have asked him that question a hundred times. Never would have expected to hear about arm wrestling. Then. I mean, me either. Wow. I was actually going to suggest that you and I arm wrestle to see who's going to win. But after he told us that... Potentially, you could break your arm. I'm out. Yeah, uh, there was. The yeah, apparently, there's a lot more that goes into arm wrestling than we thought. We thought about having uh, like an arm wrestling competition out at DefCon, and Craig said, "You know what? No, that's probably not. Let, let's keep it the thumb wars because you can actually yeah. break your arm if you're not um, uh, lined up with the way that professional arm wrestlers actually work." And no one needs that out in Vegas. So no. we'll keep it to a, a thumb war competition, maybe. Uh, late at night in some uh, Vegas casino. But until then, we'll be back next week. As always, stay curious.